Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron and with me as always is Adam Pawatic. We're recording live at the Global Property Market as part of our Real Estate Forum series. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Brad Olson, who is the president of Atlantic Partners. Welcome, Brad. Thanks for having me. So, you know, we always kind of start off with just how you got into real estate and what your story is. And, you know, maybe we've talked off air a little bit. Let's lead up to when you formed Atlantic Partners and then we'll, we'll re-engage what that is and, and what your company is. I started as a real estate lawyer. I practiced law. I grew up outside of Chicago, practiced real estate law for six years, and then decided to make the shift from the legal side to the business side. And a good friend of mine had joined Richard Ellis in the Chicago office. This is the Richard Ellis before the CBRE merger. And they were looking for someone to come and do business development for Richard Ellis, which at that point had been in the U.S. for just four years. And they thought it would be useful to have someone with a non-marketing background, a non-brokerage kind of uh, background. And they thought someone with a legal background who could speak to the institutions on a different level would be helpful. So I started in 1980 as the head of business development for Richard Ellis in the U.S. I spent the first couple of years traveling to every state capital in the U.S., talking to pension funds, corporate and governmental pension funds, and then gradually moved into the business side, the acquisitions and asset management side of the business. And then a group of us left Richard Ellis in the early 80s, set up a company of our own, which we ran for five years. And then strangely enough, Richard Ellis bought our company in 1989. I returned to Richard Ellis as one of the international shareholders running the investment side of the business in the U.S., I did that for five years, and this is now end of 94. We'd been through the worst crisis of real estate since the Great Depression, all the challenges that real estate companies faced at that point. I got tired of working for somebody else. My wife got tired of living in Chicago, and I resigned as of the end of 94. We took six months off. We played golf for three months and then traveled to New Zealand, Australia. On the flight back from Sydney, we'd sold our place in Chicago. On the flight back from Sydney to LA, she said, so where are we going to live? She had family in North Carolina. We'd been vacationing there. It was exactly what we were looking for in terms of slower pace, less expensive cost of living, and just a nice place to live. So in June of 95, we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. I had no business at that point, but I had client relationships. And interestingly enough, all of my business from, let's call it the late, uh, mid to late 1980s had been international. It had been working with European investors, investing in used real estate, or Canadian investors, investing in used real estate. And so in November of 95, I set up my current company, Atlantic Partners, on the back of two clients. One was a UK insurance company. And one was a US private equity group who had done a deal where I'd represented SITQ, the <coughs> subsidiary of the case, on a joint venture acquisition in Washington, DC. So these two clients hired me to do their business in the case of the UK insurance company, Asset Management in the US, in the case of the U.S. private equity group, to help them raise money in Europe. And so I launched Atlantic Partners basically with a couple of major premises. One was that I was going to do what I wanted to do, not what somebody wanted me to do. And what I wanted to do was to continue to build relationships with people. I I like the European style and the Canadian style, which I consider to be more relationship-driven rather than transaction-driven. So I committed to be spending my time in front of investors that had a similar view, Strangely enough, I said I was only going to work with people I liked, trusted, and respected on projects where I could add value and have fun. Why is that strange? 
strange because everybody said, when I say that, how can you possibly do that? I have to work with all kinds of people I don't like. I said, let's your choice. My choice was I was never going to do it. I work with Aaron, I understand. Ah, you get that story. <laughs> no, so if I get to know someone and I say, I don't like this person, I don't go back to see him. Part of my business, probably about 60% of my business in these intervening 24 years has been what I would call fundraising. I think of myself as not as a placement agent, but as a strategic advisor, helping fund managers identify opportunities, create products, and get those products in front of investors. And one of my domestic clients is Bell Partners, which is a large U.S. multifamily manager. I've helped them raise money for their last two funds. And John Bell, the son of the founder, when we went through Canada and through Europe, and I introduced him to people, he said, "Efforts, Brett, how is it that I like everybody you've introduced me to. And I said, John, it's real easy. I don't introduce you to people I don't like. And I figure if I like them and I like you, the odds are pretty good you're going to like each other. And it's really worked out quite well. It's an unusual strategy because it means I don't do business that other people might want to do. I turn down business if I don't like people. But it allows me to do things the way I want to do them. And part of that is building these relationships. Again, I grew up in the Midwest. I think of Canada as an expansion of the Midwest where people do what they say they're going to do, and they, if they can't do something, they tell you they can't do it. They value long-term relationships. And so in the 24 years I've had my business, the longest time from meeting someone to doing a transaction is 25 years. So I met somebody before I started my own business, and 25 years later, we actually closed our first transaction. Two months ago, I closed my second longest time period from start to finish, 20 years. Somebody I met in Hamburg when he was working for one of the private banks in Hamburg 20 years ago now runs an independent boutique investment management firm in Frankfurt dealing with logistics. And we closed on a transaction. This is sort of a classic Brad story, if you don't mind. So I've known him 20 years. He had been typically raising, finding properties for German insurance companies who were risk averse. So they would buy core only. And he kept finding these in the last two or three years, very interesting value-add German logistics properties which is German clients wouldn't touch. So he said, Brad, you must know people who will do value add. And so we started looking at assets. And May 1st of last year, I landed in Frankfurt, rented a car and drove 600 kilometers looking at a bunch of sites, projects, which he had identified and found one very interesting one. So I met with him the next day in Frankfurt. I said, of all the assets you showed me, this is the one I like the most. Now, this is the Brad story part of the thing. The lease had two years remaining with two five-year options none of the other traditional German investors would look at it. He had negotiated a purchase price. It was being sold by a German insurance company. What was interesting to me was the tenant is a private company, which happens to be owned by a German family. And the head of real estate for that German family is a Dutchman whom I've known more than 20 years. So the connection was I've known the investment manager 20 years. I've known the head of real estate for the family that owns the company that is the tenant for more than 20 years. And we ended up closing on the transaction with a U.S. investor through a common connection of somebody I've known not quite 20 years. So 20 years start to finish. I was asked recently, what's the shortest time? And I, and I <laughs> actually, I can tell you the longest. I can't even think of the shortest. But I said, it's got to be at least five years. Again, part of this is I like the idea that we get to know each other, that the clients get to know me, the investors get to know me, the fund manager gets to know me over a period of time. And so I spend a lot of time just visiting. So I've done this year, I fly back to Europe on Sunday. This will be my 10th trip to Europe. I will have spent 90 days in Europe on business this year. And a great deal of that time is not 
doing something. It's just listening to people. It's visiting with people. I was in, in Rome two weeks ago, met with a, a longtime contact of mine, and in the course of a conversation, found out about an opportunity, which I would never have known had I not spent time with him. It's not the sort of thing that you can text or email and say, oh, what are you doing? It was one of these things where we got into a conversation, as we're doing right now, talking about things. And, and one thing led to another. He said, oh, by the way, we're looking at something which I've not shared with you before. And it just so happens that there are two or three groups that I'm working with that might fit perfectly with that. And so, again, it's to me, it's the business is about relationships. And I would say that most of my American friends, and I do virtually no business in the U.S., strangely enough, I live in North Carolina. I describe North Carolina as a large hotel. I tend to be there. I love living there. I've got family there. Both sons and seven grandchildren all live in North Carolina. But I find that the American business model in real estate and generally in business is more transactionally oriented. So we do a deal today or we don't do business. And I'll go off and find somebody else to do business. Canada is, for me, much more like Europe in that we build a relationship. We get to know each other. And over time, we may do business or we may not, but we at least have a chance to get to know each other. And, and that's the style of business that I enjoy. I can that's tell you, being a Canadian sort of real estate professional, part of that, I, I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, it's just the size. In Canada, it is so small. There is this sort of notion that you don't want to burn any bridges because you just you never know the next time that person's going to pop up in a, in a transaction or in a relationship or a, or a partnership or however it may be. So that you have to maintain those relationships knowing that 20 years from now, you have no idea how how often you're, you're going to cross paths. Whereas like, I, I suspect in the US, it's just so large that you could just be off into the Netherlands and never never see that person ever, ever again. Yeah. Or, or you could be to another, you know, not a major market in the States, but you could be in a city of a million people. And if you need to move, you have a lot of options. In uh, Canada, there's not a lot of places yeah. to go there's for a million three, person. Three, four, market. maybe five cities, that's it, right? Yeah. That, I, I think for, maybe, for major real estate transactions, I, I th- anyway. I think part of it's that. I think there are two other characteristics which I, I think make Canada unique or similar to the Netherlands, which is the other market that I spent a lot of time in. One is that, by and large, Canadians are nice. Again, this is my Midwestern bias. I grew up in a place where people were nice to each other. My wife, when she moved out of New York and came to Chicago, she couldn't believe that people actually talked to her. She'd go into the grocery store and people would say hello. She'd ride an elevator. People would say hello. How are you doing? How's your day? That's a Midwestern feature. That's also a Canadian feature, I think. There's a general, and I think it has to do with who settled the parts of the, of the country or the continent. My families came from rural Europe. My father's side came from Denmark and Norway. I had farm communities in the middle of nowhere. My mom's family came from parts of Germany that, again, not densely populated, and people relied on each other. They did things together. I think much of Canada was settled by similar kinds of people, and therefore, there's a certain personality that that transcends. That's one. I may be completely wrong about that, but my wife and I joke about this. We have a a family from Toronto that lived down the street from us in, in suburban Raleigh, and we joke about the fact that there are all the Canadians are nice. These people are really nice, but they're Canadians, so of course they're nice. So there is, I think, there's a, a national characteristic which is maybe not consistent across all of Canada. It's not every. I'm not suggesting there are. I've met I've met jerks before. Uh, <laughs> that, but but on a percentage basis, there are fewer <laughs> yeah, jerks fair, here in Canada. This is going to play well with our audience for sure. <laughs> uh, and, and and the other characteristic, which I think is is unique. Again, the only two countries I've run into this are are the Netherlands and Canada in terms of the same percentages. Virtually every major Canadian institutional real estate department is run by a real estate person. That is not 100% true anymore, but it's very close to 100% true. The same is true in the Netherlands. 
In the U.S., the big pension funds and, and institutional investors, insurance companies, the real estate guy is a finance guy. He was transferred from some other department in the pension department to run real estate as part of running stocks, bonds, whatever, private equity. And I think the fact that in the Canadian market, the head, heads of real estate are real estate people means they communicate better with each other. They know each other better. They understand real estate. There's a different sort of personality that's involved. So I think that's part of the reason that I enjoy so much coming up to Canada. So maybe let's just talk about your business and different business lines. I mean, clearly, I was going to ask you about business development, but I, I suspect the answer is referrals and, and people that have known you. And you probably had 20, yeah, 20 year friendships. And so that's the, you're probably not out pounding the pavement, you know, cold calling people very often, I suspect. Actually, I'll interrupt you there say that I spent a lot of my time at conferences like this, visiting with people, getting to know people. Yes, a lot of it's referrals. So someone says, go meet Brad. Or, and I, I was just at Expo Real, the big one in Munich. And Somebody walks up and says, I, I was just somebody, I'm looking at the U.S. and they said, you got to go talk to Brad. And that's fantastic. But it's because you're visible, you're present. So part of it's that. I think that's a big part of it. And, and, I was going to say clearly trust and, and reputation, it, trust in those relationships. I mean, that goes a mile, right, when you're, when you're looking for creating the momentum that you clearly have in, in your business line. So, so what do you do for Canadians? So if we tie it back to our favorite country, uh, what do you do for Canadians specifically? That, yeah, uh, yeah, I think that from... My perspective, it started with my assignment for SITQ, the case subsidiary in the U.S., representing them as an investment advisor, helping them make a joint venture in, in Washington real estate. Of late, it's been really two things. It's been representing a U.S. multifamily manager, raising money for its value-add closed-end funds, bringing them to Canada, introducing them to Canadian investors. And that started with Hoop and Canada Post. Uh, in the most recent fund, it was IMCO uh, out of Toronto. We're in the process of raising money for Fund 7, and we have another Canadian group, which hopefully we'll sign in the next two weeks. And so that's, in, in that context, introducing Canadian investors to investment opportunities outside of Canada. That has been in the context of fund management, so a, a U.S. fund manager looking to raise money in Canada. I also represent, and this is perhaps the most unusual assignment I've taken on in 24 years, I represent BNP Paribas Real Estate Investment Management, which is a European-only real estate investment manager, part of BNP Bank, BNP Paribas Bank. And my initial assignment for them was to help them raise money in Europe from European institutional investors to invest in European real estate, and I'm sitting in Raleigh, North Carolina. That speaks to the comments you're making about building relationships and using those relationships to grow the business. For that client, we're now coming to Canada to talk to Canadian investors about opportunities to invest in Europe through that fund management platform. So I would say most of what I've done for in Canada in the last several years has been helping them identify fund managers in markets they want to be in, specifically in the U.S. or in Europe. A lot of what I've been doing most recently with Canadian investors is talking to them about where I see opportunities in Europe, where they can get into the European market, or in the U.S., specific niche strategies, opportunities to do things. And candidly, most of those conversations go nowhere. For one reason or another, it doesn't fit the Canadian investor or the, the opportunity that we thought existed doesn't exist. It can't be executed in the way that the Canadians want to execute for tax reasons or structuring reasons, legal issues. But part of that is just getting to know the Canadian investors and helping them understand what else is out there. When you think about Canadian investors who have invested outside of Canada, it's a pretty small club. If you look at the top, let's say, 25 or 30 Canadian pension funds, 
it's only the top six or eight that have actually taken aggressive steps to move outside of Canada. And we're beginning to see a bit more movement in this, what I'll call the second-tier Canadian funds. Do you have any sense why that is? What, the, what is the hesitancy? I think it's mainly a staffing question. I don't think it's a political or economic risk that they're worried about. I think it's just candidly that it's hard to do their business. Part of it is what's the size of their allocation to real estate. Unless they've got enough money to invest in real estate, it doesn't make any sense to invest a million Canadian outside of Canadian real estate. It doesn't move the needle. You really, from my perspective, I look at the size of the real estate portfolio in Canada. And if it's not, let's call it $2 billion. And let's say they're prepared to commit 10% of $2 billion outside of Canada. That starts to be a number big enough for them to start thinking seriously about, okay, how do I do that? Where do I want to go? We would assume the logical first step was to the U.S. In fact, for most of the Canadian pension funds, for reasons which I can describe, they moved to Europe before they came to the U.S. For many years, the U.S. had a very unfavorable tax treatment of Canadian pension funds, tax-exempt in Canada, coming to the U.S., that changed about four years ago, and we now have a, a much more favorable one. So we're seeing more Canadian pension money come to the U.S. But uh, Ivano Cambridge went to uh, France and Paris. CPPIB is, yes, they're in the U.S., but they have a big presence in Europe and Asia. I think for most of the second and third tier pension funds, it's a scale question more than anything else. And, you know, the real estate's being run, if, let's assume it's a, a $500 million or a, a billion Canadian real estate portfolio. They probably got one or two people running real estate. And to ask them to start examining what the world offers, it's hard to justify. And then we're back to why do you go outside Canada? Clearly, the biggest reason for countries like Canada, like the Netherlands, is there's more capital than there is real estate. And so you leave Canada, not because you don't like Canadian real estate, because it's performed really well, but because you're trying to put more money into real estate. You can't get any more money here because the pension funds particularly. Lately, at, rates, at, at attractive yields. At attractive at, yields. More attractive than domestic yields? Yeah, and so you, you say, I'll go outside of Canada. And I think the distinction between the Canadian pension funds and the U.S. pension funds, Canadians had to go outside Canada if they wanted to put more money into real estate. And they were prepared to accept comparable returns, maybe even slightly lower returns, just to get money invested in real estate. If they want to increase their allocation to real estate from 10% to 12% or 12% to 15%, it's hard to do that in Canada. But they could go to the U.S., they could go to Europe and invest more capital in the market. What's interesting to me, in, in the 80s, when I was working at Richard Ellis, my colleagues in Europe kept asking me, why aren't American investors coming to Europe? And my answer then was, they don't need to. The, the U.S. market was large enough and diversified enough. U.S. investors could stay home. Why take tax risk? Why take currency risk? Why take governmental regulation risk? Why go outside your home country if you don't need to? The countries which typically have generated, at least up until the GFC, generated most of the capital going out of their home country have been countries with more capital than real estate. And that has been true almost without exception. You think of the large global investors, they are Canada, Japan, Australia, the Netherlands. Germany is a sort of an oddball in that regard because it has a lot of real estate, but relatively small markets compared to the capital base. It's only of late that there's been a true globalization of the real estate capital markets and people go outside their home markets just because they can now. It's easier to transact business. Tax advice is easier. The other thing which has changed over the last, let's call it 40 years I've been doing this business, the real estate markets have become more homogeneous. 
So if I go to look at an office building in Prague, I'm going to see some of the same multinationals that I would see in an office building in Toronto. It's easier to underwrite an office building in Prague if you know the tenants. Similarly, you get used to what the product looks like. Uh, retail looks more like retail increasingly around the world. Logistics, e-commerce building, I could drop you in the middle of an Amazon facility in northern Germany, and you couldn't tell me you were in Germany except by the accents of the people working there. You're seeing more partnerships too. I mean, some of our domestic uh, people that come on the podcast talking about when they're experiencing you know, growth, growth globally, it's finding people on the ground that they trust and they're joining those partnerships. Is that new or is that something that's always uh, going on? Not new at all. I think that when I'm asked the question by investors anywhere about investing outside their home country, without exception, I'll say find a good local partner. Markets really are local and you need somebody on the ground who understands what the local is. That can be an operating partner, a true joint venture, or it can be through a fund manager who understands the local market. But I would say, almost without exception, unless you're large enough to build a team on the ground, you should do it with local partners. And so do you facilitate those, those relationships? Absolutely. We're closing in the next uh, 24 hours, a joint venture on a, a major development project in my hometown, Raleigh, North Carolina, or my adopted hometown, Raleigh, North Carolina being a German entity and a local Raleigh developer that will end up being about a $300 million massive redevelopment of an adaptive reuse of an urban site in downtown Raleigh. For a guy that said he's not too active in North Carolina, that's a large deal. <laughs> it is a large deal. But bear in mind, we were joking about Canadian cities. Uh, Metropolitan Raleigh is 2 million people. It's one of the largest, fastest growing communities, uh, metropolitan areas in the United States, driven by tech, driven by education, three major universities, a big research park, it's a big market. So it sounds like a big deal. It is a big deal, but it's a big market relative to most Canadian cities. Yeah, of course. If you, if you took 2 million people as the cutoff here, it'd be a very short list that made the, uh, the upside of that in Canada. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yeah, we're exactly. in one of them right now. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the other interesting things about the U.S. market for both Canadian and European investors. It's the scalability of real estate. We've noticed it particularly among Canadian investors coming to the U.S. for two subsectors. One would be residential. Multifamily in Canada is a relatively small market. You've had Toronto's probably the best example of why. You've got all these condos and relatively few built for rent uh, projects. The U.S. has a massive multifamily market. And so Canadian investors have been very active in the U.S. residential market. Same has been true for Europeans. The other sector which the Canadians love about the U.S. is logistics. Again, if you look at maybe the 25th or 30th largest logistics market in the U.S. is bigger than basically all but two markets in Canada from a logistics perspective. So it's easy for a Canadian pension fund that wants more logistics in its portfolio to come to the U.S. and invest in the logistics sector in the U.S. If a Canadian is investing for uh, risk diversification, is the U.S. a bad choice given that a lot of the threats that would uh, inhibit people from investing in Canada would likely be similar to the state's? Yeah, I'm curious just to build on that. You know, you, you mentioned some of the risk, government risk, currency risk. You know, there's a whole bunch of reasons, tax risk. There's a whole bunch of reasons why you, you would be inhibited uh, or be, be cautious about crossing a border. And I, you, you kind of said in the Canadian context, it's it's a inability to deploy capital. So therefore, I guess the lack of being able to get your money out balances off with those taking those risks. Is that the only reason you see sort of cross-border flow? I mean, diversification would make sense to me, but again, if you could do it in your own country, why would you bother taking on those additional risks? Uh, I'm curious as how that metrics make out and what maybe different clients of yours, kind of how they perceive those different variables. Yeah, I think if you're talking about Canadian investors going outside of Canada, they have much less concern about those risks of currency, government, regulation, 
simply because they're trying to get money invested in real estate. And so they're prepared to take more of those risks in order Just to increase their portfolio. Just because they got to get the money out. Yeah, I think what, I, what if you're an Italian pension fund or, or yeah. use another country that, yeah, that I mean, makes I, sense? I, I think that the typical institutional investor today is looking at the opportunity to diversify its real estate portfolio. And so I'll come back to my comment about Canada and logistics and multifamily. Some investors are investing outside their border, across their borders, simply because they want more of something they don't have at home. It may be residential, maybe logistics, it may be regional malls. So I think part of the issue is what are you trying to do within your real estate portfolio? So if you're trying to create a diversified portfolio by sector, you may have to go outside your home market to get to that sector. So that's one issue. I, you raised the question about Aaron or Ed, I'm not sure which one raised it. But, We're the same. It's okay. Yeah, it's, it's, no, no. In terms of this notion of the risk of going to the U.S., which looks a lot like Canada, and that the risks of investing in, I mean, if the auto industry goes down in, in Ontario, it goes down in Detroit, and therefore you haven't diversified economic risk. I've often said that there's no point going into international real estate to diversify economic risk. Real estate's illiquid. If you want to diversify economic risk, go buy stocks and bonds. Real estate needs to be provide something else in the portfolio. And so I think there's been much, not much concern about Canadian investors. Oh, gee, the U.S. looks like Canada or Canada looks like the U.S. I think, for again, for Canadian investors, the, the scalability has been a big issue. I do think that in terms of diversification, it becomes much more relevant as you are crossing economies. So Europe to the U.S., uh, argument today is that Europe is 18 to 24 months behind North America in terms of where we are in the recovery. And so there's a significant amount of capital that's come from the U.S. or Canada into Europe. One of the other aspects of that ties into something I mentioned earlier, which is the level of risk which local investors are prepared to accept. And part of that you have to understand in the context of what the risk-free rates are. So I do a lot of work in Germany. And so every morning I check what the 10-year Bund rate, the 10-year treasury rate is in Germany. When I turned on my phone this morning, it was a negative 29 basis points. I checked it just before we started the podcast, and it was a negative 34 basis points. So for context, I think the GOC today is sort of 60-something, like the Canadian risk-free rate. So you're talking 100 basis point difference. And the 10-year treasury rate in the U.S. is 177. And so you're looking at this in terms of what's relative return. And if you're a German institutional investor and your alternative is used to buy government bonds and they're now negative yielding, real estate at 2% looks really attractive. And so part of this is trying to understand why people are investing someplace else is understanding what's driving their interest. But I come back to this point of what's interesting about Europe today, and that is the fact that if most of the traditional institutional investors in Europe are risk averse, which is true in a number of the countries, Germany in particular, then there should be plenty of interesting opportunities for non-German investors to take risk. Whether that's value-add risk or development risk, the reality is there are very few, historically been few German institutional investors willing to take any risk. And so that creates opportunities. So as you're looking across borders, you're looking for where can I put my money to work, where I get an attractive risk-adjusted return particularly in, a, in the context of a global economy, which has low growth, low return, you're looking to try to find places where you can achieve outsized returns. And these days, those returns are attractive in certain markets within Europe. If we were to reverse the, uh, the perception of capital flow, mm-hmm. if you're out there pumping up Canada to uh, other countries, other than being nice, what do, you, what do you see here that we offer? I mean, I think 
for now just over a decade, Canada has been seen to be a very stable pro-growth environment. Performance of Canadian real estate coming out of the GFC was better than any G7 country. I think investors generally around the world recognize Canada as a stable place. I think clearly one of the issues that benefits Canada is the comparison to the U.S. from a politics perspective. You've had your exciting election. It lasted, what, six weeks? Uh, we're <laughs> it's a roller coaster. Mid- we're in the middle of our, the third year of our next presidential election, which started the day after our last one. We have a president who is unpopular with investors around the world, and people ask the question, why would I go to the U.S. and live with a president we don't care for? So, I mean, I think Canada has this perception of a stable, solid economy, solid banks, relatively little risk. Just hard to get capital out. Hard to get capital out. And that's been, the, I would say, that's been the biggest single challenge for non-Canadian investors, certainly non-Canadian institutional investors, forgetting the, the movement of Asian and private capital into Vancouver coming out of the Hong Kong period. And I think what we've begun to see is a movement by some of the large Canadian institutional investors to monetize portions of their portfolio to bring in joint venture partners. Back to your comment about how do you invest in a local, a foreign country? You invest with a local partner. And I've been having conversations with several of the largest of the Canadian institutional investors who want more money in Europe. To trade. And, and like one of that is essentially to trade some of what they have in Canada. So um, I'll, give, I'll put $200 million in Europe and you bring $200 million in here. We'll just swap out. Swap. The structuring of those is pretty yeah, tricky. Sure. And we're seeing it in sort of step transactions more so than pure property swaps. And I think the other thing which has happened is that as the Canadian institutions have become more established in terms of their Canadian portfolios, they're willing to sell some of their Canadian assets. And we've seen some movement into the Canadian market, particularly from Germany. And I think we'll see more of that. Koreans have been active here. The Chinese have been active here. It's a really tough market to penetrate. Do you do give any uh, advice for your clients for Asian investment? I mean, your Atlantic partner. So yeah, I, I, I yeah. didn't want. I wasn't sure it was safe to go there or not. You know, Long it's, ocean. <laughs> it's safe to go there. I, I made the decision when I set up the business that I was going to focus on the markets I knew best. I had done work with the Japanese investors in the U.S. in the '80s, and I've done some consulting for a Chinese family office in the U.S. But no, I don't pretend to be able to advise people how to invest in Asia. I've really focused my time on the movement of capital in both directions across the Atlantic and between Canada and the U.S. One of the interesting things, uh, one of the reasons why Europe looks attractive to Canadian and American investors is the availability of debt at incredibly low rates. It's the Japan of the 1990s. So it's possible to borrow 60% loan-to-value today in Germany at 40 or 50 basis points. So if you buy... Like all-in coupon rate. All-in coupon rate. So if you're buying a two cap, you're you're still 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 got a 150 basis point gap. Exactly right. And that's created some really interesting opportunities because the traditional European institutional investor does not lever, just like the Canadian institutions when they buy in Canada don't lever. And so if you're a non-German investor who will take leverage, you have an incredible competitive advantage over German institutional investors who are buying at 2% straight unlevered. And that creates really interesting opportunities. Now, that's a value-add strategy that may be a value-add strategy in a core asset. It just means because you're willing to take debt, you can create better returns. I think that's a really interesting comment, really interesting opportunity. Another comment I would make is that unlike Canada and the U.S., where we can at least imagine interest rates going up, most of my European contacts, certainly most of my German contacts, are now underwriting 
their real estate acquisitions on the assumption, with the assumption, there will be no interest rate increases throughout the holding period. Of 5, 10? 5, 7, 10, 15, 20. Huh. This whole concept, we heard the phrase, low longer, I think has now been replaced in the minds of many of my European contacts, low forever. There is just no concept that long rates can go up in Europe because it would devastate the Southern European economies. As long as there is an EMU, the idea that you could raise the 10-year rate by 100 or 200 basis points, it would bankrupt Italy. And so there's just, just general sense that there are all these forces at work. Some are demographic, some are political, some are geopolitical, that suggests that we're in a period of, this is the Japanization of the EU, certainly of Germany. I made this comment at a German conference last year. I said, Germany's the new Japan, and my German friends went nuts. But the reality is, we're now 11 years after the GFC, and German rates are negative. Interestingly enough, and maybe this is a, a point to make, sort of underscore where we are, in August, one of the, the second largest bank in Denmark issued its first 10-year home mortgage with negative interest rates. Now, imagine that. You're buying a house, you're financing 60 or 70%, 80% of the purchase price, and your interest rate is negative. How does that work? How does that work? So every month you make a payment, and let's say your, your monthly payment is 1,000 kroner, your account is credited with 1,000 plus a negative 50 basis points. So essentially, you get credit for paying more than you actually paid. Is it just deployment of capital? Is the, it, the, the reality is they're financing at such a lower rate. The only way for them to get people to take out mortgages is to give them an attractive rate. And the attractive rate has, to, in order to be attractive, it has to be negative. How does that um, impact house prices though? Aren't house prices just going to skyrocket? Yes, but again, it's all relative. And so what else do you do with your money? Deutsche Bank estimated that there were $15 trillion of negative yielding government bonds in the marketplace. 25% of the world's government bond market is now yielding negative numbers. And I don't think we have any idea how this plays out, but it definitely is affecting global real estate. And where an investor from Canada can go to Europe and borrow at such a low rates, it gives the Canadian investor a really positive it makes opportunity. It them, makes them willing to take on those additional risks. Exactly right. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. That was fantastic. Really ha enjoyed having you on. What a great topic. Something we don't necessarily cover in our, our little Canadian bubble uh, in our podcast. Well, the podcast says right on 100% Canadian. So it's nice to get out of our, our window. <laughs> we're now 99% we're Canadian, 1% yeah. international. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for having me today. Thanks. And thanks to our sponsor, First National, for powering the podcast. And thanks to the Global Property Markets for hosting us uh, here today. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.